Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me once again to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, at least reading the first few verses to begin with. Hear now the Word, the living God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray now for the preaching of the Word of Christ. Living God, we pray as we have already once before for Your Spirit to move and work among us. We pray that in this time of the proclamation of Your Word, Your Word would so grip our souls, even the deepest recesses of our hearts, the various faculties with which You've equipped us, that our wills would be changed. Help us, O Lord, we pray. May the voice of Christ be known to his sheep this day. In Jesus' name, amen. The beginning of Exodus chapter 6 is an answer to a prayer. God does answer prayers. Sometimes we know the answers in this life. Sometimes we know in part the answers. But in chapter 6, verse 1, we read these words, Then the Lord said to Moses, This is God answering to his prophet Moses, Moses' prayer. Notice the first few verses before our text. Exodus 5, verse 22. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. If you remember... The very end of Exodus chapter 5, the people are groaning. They're blaming Moses and Aaron. The very end of chapter 4, God had met, as it were, through His Word, His people, and they were celebrating, they were worshiping. And one chapter later, it seems as though all hope is lost, and Moses, in despair, prays to God and essentially says, God, you haven't done yet what you've promised to do. So we're reading at the beginning of our text today the answer, at least in part, to Moses' prayer. I want us to walk through this chapter together. And then at the very end, see just a few practical lessons 
We are not enslaved in Egypt, brothers and sisters. We do not have the promise anymore that God is going to take us out from the taskmasters of this earth to whom we are slaves. But, as we've seen all along, Exodus is a picture, it's a shadow, it's a type of something that is to come. We do have God's promise that He will take us to the eternal promised land and that His way of doing it is by the blood of His Son. So let's walk through this text and then see some lessons for those of us sitting thousands of years after these true events. An answer to a prayer, that's what Moses is getting. Notice how God responds to Moses. He speaks to him. In verse 2, he offers assurance by way of who he is, his identity. Notice there in verse 2, and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. That phrase, or God's identity, would be used four times in just these few verses. It's as if repeatedly God's answer to Moses and ultimately to the people that Moses leads is, remember who I am. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. You know, that's not often the answer to our prayers that we want, is it? We want the Lord to cure from cancer. We want the Lord to give us a new job. We want the Lord to grant our hearts patience and the discipleship and discipline of our children. We want the Lord to grant favor on this land as we pray for elections. We want someone to be saved. But sometimes the answer that the Lord gives us in his word is, I am the Lord. Don't forget who I am. Now in verse 3, we read something interesting. He reminds Moses of who he is. He says, I am the Lord, his identity. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. Now, in what way does God mean he wasn't known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He was known. They, they knew who he was, didn't they? Matthew Poole, the Puritan, argues that this could be understood in two different ways. Perhaps experientially, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they knew the name of the Lord, but they hadn't seen the level of the Lord's involvement that Moses and the Israelites would see in just these next few months and years. So experientially, he was believed in by those patriarchs, but those earlier men didn't see the work that Moses would see. Poole also makes the argument that it's possible that just the understanding of how revelation unfolds could be known here. In one sense, brothers and sisters, you have knowledge of the living God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't have. They looked forward to the coming Christ. They believed in His promise, but they didn't know His name. They didn't have a full glimpse of all that He would do. If you had told them about a cross on the side of a hill outside the city in Jerusalem, they may or may not have the full kind of understanding that you and I have. They were looking forward in faith. But Revelation unfolds who God is and His work becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. I was not known to them. By my name, Lord. Well, in verse 4, the living God says, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, 
the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. Not only does God respond to Moses' prayer by saying, I want you to remember who I am. Here is my name. God offers assurance by way of his covenant. In fact, notice what he says. He says, I have remembered my covenant. And then notice the descriptions of that covenant. He says in verse 4, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now here, Moses is being given the answer to prayer. Remember who I am and remember my covenant. Now we'll come back to this, but brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to hear the same word this day. Remember who God is and remember the covenant he's made with you in Christ. But let's look particularly at this covenant. Moses is hearing from God and then he is hearing a message that he is to take to the people of God. And the first part of that is a reminder of his covenant. Again, we just read it. But what was that covenant? We'll turn back to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. There, with Abraham, a covenant was given. Notice what this covenant is in Genesis 17. This is crucial for how we put our Bibles together. God is saying, I've heard your cry. You're enslaved in Egypt. You're not in the land. I've remembered my covenant. What covenant is that? Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Two, and then notice the terms of the covenant or the blessings of the covenant. To be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. So there's that covenant of circumcision that God gave to the patriarch Abraham. It is that covenant and the blessings of the covenant that here Moses is hearing from the Lord. Go remind the people of the covenant. What are the blessings? I will give you a land and you will be my people. That's the covenant. But notice specifically how he's to tell the Israelites. Tell them, God says. I've heard their groaning. I am a God who hears. I will save by an outstretched arm. I am a God who saves. I will take them as a people. I take people and make them my own. And I will give them a land. My God who gives. So the answer to Moses' prayer, firstly, is to Moses. Remember who I am and remember my covenant. And then here is the message that you are to take to the people that I want you to lead. Tell them, the God of covenant says this. Remember his 
covenant. This is important for us. Now, brothers and sisters, there are various ways for us to understand how the covenants of Scripture work. I would submit to you that we are not in the Abrahamic covenant. We don't circumcise our boys in the hope that one day from us, God would send the Messiah and give us a land. The Abrahamic covenant has been fulfilled, has it not? The skull-crushing seed of the woman has come, has he not? His name is Jesus. And the land that God gave to the Hebrews of old was the land that he walked in, that he served in, that he taught in, that he did miracles in. And then he died for sinners like you and me. You see, the covenants that God made with Abraham, that God made with Moses and David, those covenants point us by way of promise to the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. But, as we'll see in just a few moments as we come to this table, we too are in covenant with God. It's called the new covenant. And in this new covenant, God says, I will be your God and you will know me. But then there's another term. If you read Hebrews 8, it's not I'm going to give you a land in the Middle East anymore. It's I'm going to forgive your sins. When you pray, remember the identity of your God and remember his covenant. Notice in Exodus 6 verse 7, a very interesting word is used very beginning of seven at the end of six, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. That word redeem is all throughout the Bible. In fact, regularly in the Old Testament, the idea of redemption is centered in what is known as a kinsman redeemer, a relative that in the midst of your troubles comes in and provides the redemption that you need. Well, how is Israel going to have their kinsman redeemer in God? Well, in Exodus 4.22, what does God call Israel? A relative. You're my son. God is going to be the kinsman redeemer, as it were, to bring this people out. What glorious news. Here's the sermon you're to preach, Moses. Go tell them, here's who I am. Remind them of my covenant. And how do the people respond? Verse 9. They did not heed. And we're told why. Because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. It's entirely possible for us to hear of God's name and God's covenant promises, but be in our own lives in a spirit of anguish. Troubled times, cruel bondage, and for our hearts not to be gripped by the love of the God who saves. Maybe that's where you are today. Isn't it often the case that our experiences speak a louder word than God's truth? Isn't that often the case for us? It's not that we're not saved, those of us who are trusting in Christ. But it's that there are seasons in our life where we are in anguish of spirit and that speaks the loudest word to us. Such that when we hear of God's covenant promises, when we come to God's covenant table, we don't heed the full reality of all that that means. Now as we'll see, this people is a stubborn people. 
Many of these people are not believers, ultimately. But a point of application for us today is this. Is there something currently in your life that is keeping you from hearing or heeding the word of God? What, quote, cruel bondage of this world? What anguish of spirit is currently causing you to not heed the word of God? To not receive it, to not cling to it, to not love it, to not embrace it as God's very word to you. Moses, here's the answer to your prayer, but I want you to go to my people. Here's my word. Remind them of my covenant. If you spend any time here at Grace, you know that every week we talk about covenant. We have to because we come to this table every week. God visibly puts his covenant in our face. Every once in a while, we have the other sign of his covenant in these waters. One who's professed Christ is buried in the waters of baptism and raised, as it were, to walk in newness of life. And all of us who are baptized can look on that person and the baptismal waters and we can remember our own baptism and hear the covenant words put right in our face, I save dirty sinners from their slavery of the Egypt of sin. Sometimes, because of the bondage of this life, sin that still remains, Sometimes because of the circumstances that we are in, the sufferings that we can experience, covenant words fall on deaf ears. Well, the text continues, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. The Lord is relentless, it seems. Moses keeps saying, I can't do this. I don't speak well. Moses, here's who I am. Here's my covenant. Here's the message again. Go. Verse 12, And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. You ever have that idea? This group of your own people won't hear me, so of course the pagan leader of the greatest nation of the world won't hear me. Is God limited? Is his arm too short to save? Verse 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for the king of Egypt. Notice, both parties are to heed the word of God. It's for all peoples. The children of Israel, no, I'm going to do this. The king of Egypt, no, that I'm going to do this. To bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In verse 12, Moses prays about his own limitation. He calls it uncircumcised lips. Lord, my lips are not prepared. They're not marked out for this task. They're uncircumcised. Again, a reference to Moses' inability to speak well. In verse 13, notice the Lord gives the command again to both Pharaoh and to the children of Israel to heed his word. Now, if you're a reader of Scripture, sometimes it becomes very clear to you why the next paragraph is in your Bible. But sometimes there are paragraphs that show up in your Bible and you think, why is that here? What are the very next verses in Exodus chapter 6? Well, it's a genealogy. Why 
in the midst of this story, because at the beginning of chapter 7, really at the end of chapter 6, the story is going to pick back up. Why does the Lord give us a genealogy here? In verse 14, we read of the genealogy. These are the heads of their fathers' houses. The son of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, or Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. Sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. Now let me just stop here. How many tribes of Israel were there? Well, of course, we know that famous number 12. We're only given three tribes here. We're given a lot more names, boys and girls, but only three of the 12 that we know of are given. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. What is the Lord doing? And why here? The text continues. We've just been given Levi's age, 137. Verse 17, the sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These are the families of Levi, according to their generations. So now we have some families of those first three tribes. The text continues, perhaps giving us a glimpse as to why it's here. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. So somehow, boys and girls, the Holy Spirit, writing through the pen of Moses, wants us to know how Aaron and Moses are connected to all of God's promises. They're going to be the ones, particularly Moses, is going to be the one to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. So we're, we're given a little bit of a family tree here. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. That's interesting. We've seen that number already in his father Levi. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elishaba, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, as wife. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel as a wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, according to their families. Then notice verse 26. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. Now, what are we to do with this? Why is this here? This may seem like a strange place for a genealogy. And many of us are tempted when we get to this in our yearly Bible reading plan or daily devotion to think, oh, it's a list of names. Let me keep going. 
But have you ever stopped and asked yourself, all these genealogies, why are they there in the Bible? It's Spirit-inspired Scripture. What do we need to glean from this, and particularly its placement right here in the midst of God answering Moses' prayer? Let me submit to you a couple of reasons why this could very well be here. The first is this. Moses and Aaron are seen to be in the family tree of Israel as they lead. Do you remember, boys and girls, where Moses lived his life until he became an adult? It wasn't out with the Hebrews. He was with the daughter of the king. Moses may have grown up in Egypt, but he is one of the Hebrews. And we're meant to see that. Look again at verse 26. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said. Now you and I don't doubt who Moses is. But if you're reading the history of God's unfolding work for the very first time, the Holy Spirit wants you to see who this Moses is. But there's a second reason why this is likely here. And that is this genealogy focuses in particular, if if you have eyes to see it, on one particular tribe. Now I know that there were three that are mentioned. That of Reuben, that of Simeon. But there, there are details here that cause us to focus particularly on the tribe of Levi. In a sense, Levi, who is the third son, takes on the status of the firstborn. Notice that it will be the tribe of Levi that will lead the people of God for this endeavor. This is the tribe that Moses and Aaron come from. Turn with me to Numbers. It's going to be very important when we see the plagues, boys and girls, to remember the word firstborn. Actually, that word's going to be important to you when you read about Jesus. Firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn from the grave. But notice in Numbers chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, Levi takes on a particular status. Levi and his tribe. Numbers 3, verse 11. Then the, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel. This theme of firstborn is going to take on importance and symbolically For a good while in the Old Testament, Levi will be, as it were, the symbolic firstborn of God's people. And we're given a focus here. Even the names seem to point this out. Jochebed, it's the first time in the Bible that a name is based on the word Yahweh. Jochebed could literally be translated, Yahweh weighs heavily on me. Amram is given his age. Birthdates sometimes are important. We're given the age of Amram, and notice it's the same as Levi. It's almost as if, as one scholar has said, 
The writer wants us to kind of see Amram as the beginning, as it were, of this movement through the tribe of Levi. So what have we seen so far? Perhaps this genealogy is here, and I think it is, because Moses and Aaron need to be viewed as part of God's people. But it's also here because Levi begins to take a central role among the tribes. There'll be another tribe that will ultimately take preeminence. For a lion will come from him. And that is the tribe of Judah. But Levi takes the firstborn status for a while. But there's one other reason that I think that we can be encouraged by the inclusion of this list of names, boys and girls. Before we leave Levi too quickly, who are these other two men? Reuben, Simeon, and then the new firstborn, Levi. Well, Reuben's the firstborn. But Reuben and Simeon have a troubled past. Matthew Poole, in his commentary, says this about the inclusion of these three tribes. He names the worst of the twelve tribes so that he might show forth their conversion and God's mercy. And this he, now laying the foundations of the church, sets forth to all those repenting. You remember, we've seen the names Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Turn over just a few pages to Genesis chapter 49. There Jacob lays dying and he gives certain words of promise of blessing to his various children. And this is what he says. This is what we know of Reuben and Simeon and Levi so far. Reuben, you are my firstborn. Genesis 49, 3. My might and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Sounds really good. Dad, thank you. But he's not finished. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. This has to do with part of Reuben's past. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Okay, he's passed over Reuben. Now he's naming us. One of us is going to get really good words. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Here, these three names are given, and from one of them, will come a lesser Savior of God's people. Reuben and Simeon and Levi, Matthew Poole says, and I completely agree with him, are listed here as reminders to us that God's saving mercy is not based on the filth of our past record. Well, what do we learn from Exodus chapter 6? The very end of this passage we're brought back to the story, verse 27. These are the ones, Moses and Aaron, who spoke to Pharaoh the king of Egypt to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. So we've got an answer to prayer, a list of names, and a reminder of who Moses and Aaron were. 
And let's close with three lessons and perhaps even a fourth. The first lesson for us is this, and we've already seen it, but I want to remind you of it. God's identity and His covenant are our sure foundation in the midst of Egypt. Who God is and His covenant words with us are our sure foundation in the midst of the Egypt of our sin. Remember, Egypt is a picture of our sin, being enslaved to sin. The old covenant people really were slaves to Pharaoh. That becomes a picture for every human being, spiritually, that is enslaved to sin. And what is our hope in the midst of our battles with sin, brothers and sisters? Who God is and His covenant promise. That's our sure foundation. In fact, the writer of Hebrews picks this up in chapter 6, 7, and 8. We have a sure anchor of the soul, Jesus Christ, who's come to us by the very promise of God, the God who cannot lie. Who God is and His promise is our sure foundation in the the midst of the Egypt of sin in which we walk. But secondly, we've seen this. God's words to Israel point us to God's promises to save. Do you remember the things that he told Moses to tell Israel? Let me just summarize them for you. Moses, tell them, I have heard their groaning. I will save them by an outstretched arm. I will take them as my people, and I will give them the land that I promised. Now, God does do that, boys and girls. But there's a lesson for us as Christians who've trusted in Christ. God hears the groanings of His people. You ever groan over your sin? The sins of the world in which you live? How did Jesus describe kingdom people in his great sermon on the mount they mourn god hears the groanings of his people god will save us by an outstretched arm we are saved but we will very soon see that salvation with our very eyes hebrews 8 reminds us that the covenant we're in comes with the promise that god takes us as his people And God will give us a great eternal land in glory. But maybe you're here and you're outside the saving promises of God. Maybe you know that you wrestle with sin and bad deeds, but you haven't trusted Christ. I want you to envision your life right now as if you are enslaved to a cruel taskmaster in Egypt with no hope of escape. That is what your sin is like. Some days might be better than others. You might make more bricks than other days. But unless God intervenes, you will not be freed from your sin and you will die in them. Notice that God's plan of salvation for the Israel people was unilaterally all that God would do. This is what I'm going to do. I've heard you. I have heard you. I will save you. I will take you as my people. I will give you a land. God does it all. And it strikes me as important to say, perhaps on this particular day, in a text like this, 
that many of you sit beneath the preaching of the gospel and you think that the gospel means this. God will save people. And so when I'm good and ready and I've cleaned myself up, I will trust him. Maybe you say it like this. I'm not quite ready to throw my whole self onto God's promise to save by the blood of Christ. I need to prepare myself to come to God. You will never come to God, friend, because your preparations will never be finished. God is the God who saves literally out of Egypt in the Old Testament, but spiritually from sin in Christ. And there is no amount of preparation that you can do to be ready for salvation. You just come. God has heard your groaning. But God says to you, who have ears to hear it by His Spirit, I will save you. And so it may seem very strange to you, but what keeps many people, humanly speaking, from coming to Christ is a pride. A pride that says, I have got this. Jesus is necessary. And so let me take the Jesus reins in my hand and figure this thing out. And unless you fling your whole soul on Christ and Christ alone, you will die enslaved to the sins of Egypt in which you live, and you will be without God. You have to have Christ, but you cannot have Christ with any works in your hands. You cannot prepare yourself to come to Christ. God must be your Savior, or you will have no Savior at all. God has to initiate your salvation, or you will have no salvation at all. Christ will save the whole man, or he will not save any part of the man. Have you trusted in Christ? God's message to the people of Israel through Moses was, here's what I'm going to do. Here's who I am, and this is what I do. Through Christ now, that is what God says to any who have ears to hear. Here is who I am, and this is what I do. I save sinners by the blood of the Lamb. But those sinners have to come completely to Christ and through Christ alone. So if you're in the midst of your addiction, if you're in the midst of your wrestling with sin, thinking, you know, I could use a little religion. I could clean myself up and maybe I could be as respectable as some of these people around me here at this little church that are singing hymns to God. You will never be saved. What you have to do is fling yourself completely and wholly on Christ alone. He must wash you. He must provide a righteousness for you. Nowhere in the Scripture does God say to people that He's going to save, hey, here's what I want you to do. Do these things, and then I'll add the rest of the work. Everyone that God saves, He says, hey, here is who I am. Here's what I do. Come to me. A third lesson. We have to kind of look for this in the midst of this text, but it's there. We can miss out on God's comfort if our experiences speak the loudest words in our ears. Listen, God sent his messenger who spoke to him, as it were, almost face to face. But the people were in such bondage and such anguish of spirit that they couldn't hear Now, even for believers today, brothers and sisters, sometimes, perhaps in a more minor way, that's our story. God comes to us through his word. 
But the various experiences that we are in keep us from receiving the comforts of his covenant blessings. Think about it. In just a moment, if you're a believer and you come to this table, through bread and wine, God is going to preach to you covenant words. And they're unilateral words. They're words without qualification. My son has been sent to die for you. He's done everything necessary. Receive the comfort of the gospel. Receive the hope of the glorious good news again in your soul, that I've done everything to save you. But our experiences and our hurts and our challenges and our wrestlings with sin keep us focused on self, focused on the what-ifs, perhaps even wrestling with, I'm not worthy this week to come to the table. (laughs) You're never worthy. Ever. But Christ is. And He says, I want you to come to My covenant I am the food. I am the blood that washes you. Just come. But isn't it precious that the God who graciously gives us all that we need is also the God who is seen here and throughout the pages of Scripture as the God who hears what? What does He hear in this passage? Our groanings. Well, lastly, and we'll close with this. Past failures by God's people do not hinder. They do not hinder God's work in mercy. Little Reubenites, little Simeonites, a bunch of little Levites, would walk right out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. Now, some of them will fall. In fact, it would be their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren who would see the actual land of promise. Simeon and Levi presumptuously act in Genesis 34 after their sister is violated and they nearly bring disaster on Israel. Reuben in Genesis 35 sleeps with his father's concubine. We've heard already Jacob's words and his dying bed. But here in the midst of this text, those three worst of tribes are somehow connected to what God is going to do through Moses to save his people. You know where else there's a genealogy of a bunch of failures? (laughs) Matthew 1. You ever read Matthew 1? Christmas time. You ever read the names? People from whom Christ comes. Prostitutes. Adulterers. God's work is not dependent on your record. Let's pray. living God, the God who hears the sufferings and groanings of His people, the God who saves without their aid, without their contribution, the God who promises and does not relent, does not forsake His Word. We pray that this story of some Hebrews thousands of years ago in a desert being saved 
would remind us of the greater reality that it points to, of a bunch of sinners from every nation and tribe and tongue enslaved to sin being brought out by Yahweh God through His covenant promise and the blood that He sheds that His Word may be kept. Help us as we meditate on this passage this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.